Blog Talk Radio. Generations. It is the generation before this generation of madness that is mad. A legacy of insanity gifted to the children of the insane. No passing of discipline or traditions, but rites of guilt, pain, and plagues. A tortured sadness passes. It is the generation of sunshine that has left us sightless as the children of the blind lead us toward the millennium of darkness. The generation of choice has left us no choices as our world turns and we devour ourselves. We stare into the eyes of our children, a brilliant reflection of our image, and we blame them for what we see. Birds flying high, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me, yeah. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me. Like you and me get caught in the middle of it. Yeah. 
You're listening to Black Wall Street USA for Thursday, October 14th, 2010. I'm Sonia Purdue, founder of Chicago's Black Business Network.com and author of Black America, Asking Ourselves the Tough Questions, Book 1, 2010, now available on Amazon.com. Our host this evening is Mr. Ron Carter, chairman of Black Wall Street Chicago, who is also the publisher and editor of South Street Journal for 16 years and presently a candidate for alderman of the 17th Ward, and he will be joining us shortly. Black Wall Street USA is the official broadcast of Black Wall Street National, and we've been on the air since December 2009. We are holding steadfast in our efforts to sustain and increase black businesses across the nation. We are here every Thursday evening at 7 p.m. right here at www.blogtalkradio.com slash CBBN. You may listen to a rebroadcast of CBBN on Blog Talk Radio at wjpcchicago.com. This show will be rebroadcast from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. on Saturday mornings. Our caller number is 347-326-9477. Our caller number is 347-326-9477. 9477, the chat room is open. Leave your company information, comments, and website links in the chat room. Press the number one if you would like to speak to one of our guests, our hosts, or if you have a comment. As we open, you are listening to one of the points from my book, from my first book called Generations. Um, I'm also in a Nina Simone mood this night, so we will play a couple of more songs from Miss Simone. That was feeling good. Now, uh, the way it was playing through blog talk is a little bit fuzzy or staticky. If you open up your media player and listen to it, it does sound real good. Feeling Good is is one of my favorite, favorite songs. The other song that you heard at the top of the show was a song we've been playing since we've come on the air, and that was Kosher Singing Common Ground. You can visit her website at www. Conclusion.com, that's with a K, K-O-N-C-L-U-S-I-O-N.com. We also played Tenderly by a CBBN Network member, Mr. Boise Queen. Before we bring Mr. Carter on the air, let's talk about some of the upcoming events for Black Wall Street Chicago. First, Black Wall Street invites you to join them for their welcome reception for the Economic Summit 13. This is the 13th Summit hosted by Black Wall Street since 2007. That summit will, that welcome reception will be Friday, November 5th at the offices of South Street Journal, located at 449 East 35th Street in Chicago. The event will be from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m., and you can call 312-239-8835 for more information and to RSVP. You also want to call and get on our mailing list so we can keep you updated about what's going on. That number again is 312-239-8835, and I will post it in the chat room. Next, uh, on Saturday, December 4th, uh, is the actual economic summit at Prince Hall Masonic Temple, located at 809 East 42nd Place in Chicago. That will be from 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. That is an all-day event. We will serve a continental breakfast and a light lunch. So be prepared to stay all day uh, and talk about all the concerns and issues that have, that's involved in our community. You can also call the same number, 312-239-8835, for more information and to get on our mailing list. Now, your purchase ticket would also be your raffle ticket. 
we're going to make a commitment to give away 25 door prizes this Saturday. So it's going to be a great day for a whole lot of reasons. So come on and be a part of all that Black Wall Street does. Just a little bit more about my book, Mr. Carter, before I bring you on the air. The book is entitled Black America, Asking Ourselves the Tough Questions, Book 1, 2010. If you look at our show page here on Blog Talk Radio, you will see the book cover there. And, of course, you may click on it and place your order at Amazon.com. Uh, also, I'm going to play the tough question, number one, because I would like for Mr. Carter to be one of the first to answer the tough question. Asking ourselves the tough question is a formalized five-part question and answer session that uh, began in July of this year. It was published in July of this year. The book uh, has approximately 82 questions. I shouldn't know how many questions it has. 82 questions, and there's room for you to write your own answers if you wish to keep it personal or uh, it's a, a great tool for open discussion, book discussions, book groups, um, just general discussions. This series of books will challenge black America to collectively engage in a dialogue that I believe will initiate solutions to our collective concerns and issues. My vision for the 2014th publication, which will be the fifth publication, is Black America, Our Questions Answered. Watch for our radio and TV broadcasts where we travel across this country and ask Black America the tough questions. Once again, you can pick up a copy at Amazon.com. You can also preview a copy um, on Amazon. Uh, you can look through certain pages of it. And you can also preview the first tough questions question right here on the blog talk show page. So if you scroll down, you will see the first tough question. You listen to Black Wall Street USA. And as we speak to listeners from across the country and discuss the concerns surrounding our community, our call in number is 347 326 347-326-9477, and we ask that you call in with your comments. Before we bring Mr. Carter on the air, I would like for you to listen to the first tough question, and I want, um, I want to hear uh, Rod's response to it. Here we go. Tough question number one. Imagine that you are a black man and the year is 1955. You're walking down the street in a community known as Bridgeport in Chicago. And four white men pull up beside you in a Chevy. Are you afraid? Imagine the year is 1964 and you are a young black man driving down a dark road on your way to Meridian, Mississippi with two Jewish associates. When you see the bright lights of a car in your rearview mirror, then you see a flashing red light and know that it is a police vehicle. Do you feel safe or are you forever regretful? Imagine as a black man in the year 2010, you're driving through Chicago's Inglewood community and you quite appropriately stop at a stop sign. Before you can pull off, four black men pull up next to your car. Are you scared? Where do you as a black American feel safe? Where do you feel threatened? Why are we still afraid? Haven't we been afraid long enough? This is Black Wall Street USA. I'm Songa Purdue. Let's bring out our host, Mr. Ron Carter, Chairman of Black Wall Street Chicago and candidate for Alderman for the 17th Ward in Chicago. Mr. Carter, are you there? 
Hi, Sonia. Good evening to you. With your tough you, question. Sir. That's right. That's right. Are you ready right. for that question? Um, yes. Yes, and a half, and the third one, no. I live in Inglewood in Chicago. I witnessed um, in 1950s white men running up against me, chasing me in the Bridgeport area. And um, yes and no, I'd be suspicious of all white folks if I was downtown, I mean down south. That was a tough one based on our... It gives me some reflection of, I think, those tough questions, regardless if one can answer them. There still is a reflection of one's experience before you even can answer it. I think there's some flashbacks to those uh, questions that, uh, regardless of how easy they are to answer, uh, there still is a lot of thought in them, uh, especially living in, in in the Inglewood area of uh, Chicago, I feel safe um, based on where I come from in Chicago, but I know that there is the danger that leers within the community. Uh, it just so happens that today I was, I just left the Inglewood community talking to a, a lot of young brothers. And as you talk to them and as you uh, get to feel where they're coming from and where they are, you tend to have a different uh, attitude toward that third question. Uh, and I guess it is about your engagement in life. Uh, I used to live in Beverly Hills. Uh, I still would not be afraid and because I was raised in public housing. So sometimes it's like a uh, uh, a dog where a dog will sense if you're afraid. Uh, the same way with your second question, um, I'm afraid all the time when I see a flash of light coming by me, even if it's an ambulance. I think maybe the ambulance is coming to get me because the police is going to do a hijack on me. Or And then as far as the 1950, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid then. So I think that your questions, regardless of how I could just run off and say yes, yes, and no to the third, there's still a tough experience that comes to a quick answer because, uh, again, personally for me, I have to reflect on how those things reflect on my life. And I guess uh, it can have a bearing on anyone answering those tough questions is that they got to reflect on their life, they got to reflect on history, uh, and they got to reflect on people that that they may know have experienced uh, answering those type of questions. So they are very uh, thoughtful uh, in the consciousness of um, one has to pause. Regardless of how easy that they answer it, you still got to pause and think about your life and your experiences before you even answer those questions. And you got to think about what happened to you to experience those type of questions. So they're tough questions, I think, more in where that set of questions 
or tough as it relates to one's experience in life. What made you even think about asking some tough questions like that? Where your brain was at? Well, I'll tell you, Mr. Carter, but first, uh, let's talk about the, the tough question a little bit, and, I, and I'll tell you how it came about, and that, and that is in the uh, preference of my book, how it came about. But in the, And, of course, we could go back further and use uh, uh, a lot of examples, uh, you know, uh, as to what gives us fear as black people. I started with the uh, the 50s, and it's strange that I have not asked a woman this question yet. The only, uh, and I, I don't know how that came about. It wasn't intentional. Yeah, why did not you ask a woman? You just asked men that type of tough question? It's just, it's just that's who I've been communicating with, I guess. I just, I you just, just communicated with that. men? You're not communicating with women? Mostly. <laughs> but... I oh haven't asked, I haven't asked them a tough question, but I have not asked the woman the tough question. I really haven't. I just thought about that. But every male that I've asked, and I'm going to do a comparison, but I just even real, I just realized that in this moment that I have, I don't have a response from a woman to that question, and I just realized it. But uh, every male that I've asked that question does because they are Chicagoans, they grew up in Chicago, uh, they're in my age group, so they uh, can reflect back to the 50s. And they all, the way they start the answer, they don't answer the question, they reflect on their experience right, uh, okay. in dealing with the Bridgeport, um, mm-hmm. with the people in Bridgeport and their experience. They reflect back. To that, sixty-three. We know that uh, we all can reflect as to what was going on in Mississippi, and those three young men that were beat to death down there, uh, driving to Meridian, Mississippi, from a civil rights march down there. Uh, yes, they were forever regretful that they stopped that car uh, because of that flashing light, uh, that police vehicle. And fast-forwarding to the present time. I asked that question, and the males that I have asked that question say, no, they're not afraid to be in Inglewood, because I'm not afraid to be in Inglewood. Personally, myself, I've lived there also, and I've also lived in the uh, Beverly area, so, you know, I I, I feel free to walk. I'm going to walk everywhere. Um, But I think the last sentence of that question is, where I want to get to with that question is, why are we still afraid? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, there is, um, again, just today I was at a meeting in the Inglewood community, meeting with a group of young brothers, but I think I take it uh, upon my approach is I gave maybe about a 45-minute presentation of who I am when I was speaking to them. And I do reflect on my experiences being a tough guy, being a a teenager, and also my experience of making uh, white folks uh, be intimidated in my presence uh, on purpose. And that was a sense of rebellion and we wrote a story in um, in the last issue of South Street Journal 
where uh, a quote from uh, Dr. Uh, John Porter, and he indicated that that being afraid is a reflection of the intimidation that youth of youth frustrations where they're going to take out their frustrations. They'd rather take it out on people outside of their community, but they would take it out on those close to them. And one way or another, they have to let those frustration out. So uh, speaking to them today about that frustration, about comparing your first question and your second question, uh, then the third question, and then your roundup question of why we are afraid um, is many different answers to many different people. Um, however, how do we get to be not afraid and how those questions are very important uh, and sadly that those are some tough questions to ask, even though that's just one how many you say? Eighty-eight questions. Yeah, there's, there's actually eighty-two questions. Yes, there are. So, do yes, when are. reading the book is each one of those questions uh, taking the the readers that uh, dialogue with someone about the questions and a whole new uh, I say dialogue of conversation just based on those questions is that the intent is that what you're doing with the with the book and the questions um, uh, developing dialogue can we get a, a sneak review of another question sure, is that possible without buying the book first or can, is that is that cheating in the book sales no that's not cheating uh, the questions uh, let me tell you how, the, how it came about first. It was not intentional. You know that I'm a writer, and I call myself a writer, and I can write. Um, mm. And I'm going to write more. I'm really on my second book, which is my book of poems, which is easy because I put all my poems together <laughs> and pulled them out and dug them out. So I, I, I got a book of poems now. So okay. that wasn't difficult. So I'm publishing my book of poems. It's 23 in me, now out of me, which is it's just um, just all my writing, uh, some new, and some are in this book. The first um, poem, Generations, is an old poem from like 2000, um, and one of my favorites, which talk about how we pass on rights, uh, rights, a passing of rights to our children. But how the tough questions came about was not an intentional, uh, deliberate thought on my part. It was never an intentional thought that I'm going to write the tough questions. It never happened like that. One morning I got up, and I was feeling kind of frustrated and a little bit <sighs> confused, and I wanted to sort out some tough questions for myself. I had to think about some things uh, and make some plans and make some changes. And I got up, still in my bathroom, my little slippers, went on downstairs to the dining room with a, a yellow uh, legal pad, and I sit down at the dining room table and I start writing. Mm -hmm. And actually, Ron, the first question that you just heard, that's how it came out of me. Mm -hmm. I did not stop writing until I reached 100 questions. It was never, ever intentional. I had to tell myself that I would stop writing at 100 because this was just a flow. 
It was just a nonstop flow. And there was never a plan to write the tough questions. I just sat down there, and it was going to be a personal thing that I asked myself some questions like, what you going to do? You know how to interview questions. So what you going to do in, in six months or five years? What are your goals? What are your plans? That was mm-hmm. what I thought I was walking downstairs to the dining room table to do. But when I sat down at the dining room table, something changed, and there was the book. And the questions are in the book as they came from me. I did remove some questions, and I added some more at the end, but that pretty much happened that morning in um, last July, and it just came mm-hmm. just like that. Um, mm. and, and there it is, and I, I completed the process. Um, mm-hmm. Pretty much wrote the book in one day. I added this forever, <laughs> but okay. I wrote it just sitting mm. there that day. Right. It just came just like that. Mm-hmm. But um, the questions, let me see. I'll just flip through. Question number 51. Do we as black people have an American agenda? Is there a place for us on the American landscape? Where as where are we as a people in the international landscape? Do we even have a voice or a place? So the questions cover a variety of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one gets very personal and very historical. There are a couple of short stories, uh, very short stories, like two-page stories uh, for certain questions that I reflect on. But in talking to people about the tough questions, I don't answer the tough questions. They're not about me. You can see a reflection of me. This book is me because it came from me. So you can see uh, where my head was and what was important to me by the questions that I asked mm-hmm. and by what's, by what's important to me. I think uh, the first tough questions is one of the most profound to me because um, – I can't relate to it myself, and I know my mother and my grandmother, because we live on 35th and Princeton, right um, on the other side of the tracks. They very much can reflect on it. But um, I think one of the most profound questions in this book for me is probably question 15, which is 50 million dead, 50 million dead. Reportedly, 37% of all abortions are performed on black women. Our silence on the mass murder of approximately 15 million babies since 1973 is deafening. Where is the outrage? That is one of the most profound questions in the book to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, and I know you probably, you may not be able to answer that question, but that's one of the most profound answers, questions to me in the book. Mm-hmm. Well, no, the I think men have a concern um, deep-rooted in their soul regarding abortion as well. Uh, uh, naturally, it's not as profound as it relates to a woman uh, because it is a physical part of their body of attachment opposed to the psychological effect that it may and can have on a male that um, did have its seed uh, destroyed. Uh, There are the conveniences of it, but there still is the uh, somewhat, I believe, uh, an attachment of what if 
this child was born. Uh, yes, I'm speaking of someone that is uh, pro-life, um, but uh, your questions are a a, a subject uh, dropper. Would you, would you uh, are you going to get ready to convert it into a game that people can have at the parties as well, or a, a charade a book as well? Uh, uh, so it, it seems as though it can go many different ways. It can go many different ways. That would be hell of a party game uh, because it gets yeah. tough. It, it, it gets tough, especially if you hit that abortion question in a group, any group, no matter what group, that question mm-hmm. gets very tough. Uh, there are questions about our children. Uh, that it, just, it, it, it touches, I'm not saying that there's, I touched on everything. I touched on what was given to me, what came through me, and what was felt. Um, mm-hmm. But it covers, it covers, it's designed to, really it's designed to have us engaged just as we are in discussions about it collectively. You know yourself, if you go down to McDonald's right now and sit down, they are asking the tough questions in a different way. Mm -hmm. I'm just formalizing the discussion, Mm -hmm. uh, trying to bring us to the same page and have the discussion and keep progressing that's why it's a five part series, a five year series. I didn't I didn't make all this up, this just came wrong. <laughs> that's why it's a five year series so that we can progress through the questions. Now the twenty eleven uh the tough questions uh twenty eleven experience, which is the name of the second book, is not mm-hmm. even written by me. It is going to be when I set up the blog uh, there's going to be an offer to anyone to submit a question for the 2011 experience, to submit an answer to the 2010 question, and to submit a question for the 2011 experience, and that will be what will be published uh, next July. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, Amer- right. America is going to be asking the tough questions themselves. Yes, I see. I think that if you uh, maybe we need to do something with, uh, I know we don't want to give all the questions out before people buy it, but maybe we need to have some type of exchange in the pages of the South Street Journal in asking the tough questions. Yes. We could ask tough question number one. That that provokes emotion. The, the, piece, the men who answered that question, it does when they think back to the experience, it provokes emotion. I, I, I can hear the emotion. Uh, think about thinking of, and each of them had a Bridgeport story. They all had a Bridgeport story. They sure did. Yeah, about yeah, something right. happened to them. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I definitely had my Bridgeport stories at uh, twelve, thirteen years old. Uh, yes, I can remember it like it was uh, yesterday, and especially when you have those uh, experiences at a young age, you t- it definitely. And I don't know what happened to my um, my counterparts at 12 and 13 years old that they they not stay focused of what happened to them in Bridgeport, uh, but it gave me a little focus of reality of life at that age that kind of molded me and stuck with me to say that 
there's something wrong here. There's something that is got to change here, and uh, it, it's a, a consciousness to a youth. Uh, even the the third question uh, uh, to the first question of um, Are you afraid when you walk through Inglewood? How does that affect the present day youth? Uh, can would they answer that question different from what I answered it? And I think for the most part, what I'm hearing is they can answer it. Uh, I have a 17 year old son that says uh, uh, certain neighborhoods he's not going to walk in. So um, that is a uh, it does mean different answers to different generations to. Um, different movements of the black community. So I think you need to really um, get ready to print some more books, my dear, uh, because it is a a tool for discussion and is a tool for people to reflect on their lives as you have developed some, some questions of that. I mean, even to the point that I answered the question, uh, being a part of an abortion in my younger years, uh, so yeah, you, you you're pretty broad in reflecting many lives and uh, in those questions, you know. And those are just two of the eighty-eight questions. That's right. So it's mm. it's, it's going to be. I, I'm working on it, Mr. Card. I'm working on it. Uh, as people who are already authors, you know, writing. The book is one thing. Marketing it is a totally different thing. So that's a, another part of the experience that I'm going to go through um, and uh, and learn because you know I I like to I'm doing everything. <laughs> you know I tell you I can do everything, but it's I it's, know a, it. it's something for it's for me to learn and I'm going to learn it and I'm going to market it. Uh, Angela Wins has offered to assist me in marketing and also got a call from. Um, one of Dorothy Brown's assistants, I'm not sure if she's the chief of staff. I think she is Dorothy uh, Brown's chief of staff. She called me uh, about the tough questions, and mm. she did She did the uh, – uh, she worked for R.J. Dell previously, and uh, she did the marketing for uh, one of the books, and why can't I think of it now? Uh, I think Travis Nolly's book. Oh my goodness! What can I think? Oh, okay. She was the PR person scheduling uh, the PR and uh, doing the marketing and advertising for that book, and she did well. So she sees that. Uh, She sees some. She sees some major benefits to want to step out and want to market it. She won't do that unless she see a market. So you definitely got a market for someone of that caliber to say, I want to be a part of this marketing. They see ching chings. <laughs> <laughs> I was very, I was just so, you know, I was giddy. I was so excited, you know, I was just very mm-hmm. excited. Yeah, they, and they, I, they I, see some ching chings, my dear. Yes, they do. Right. Mm-hmm. right. You listen to Black Wall Street USA, and I'm Sonia Purdue, and we're talking to Ron Carter, chairman of Black Wall Street Chicago, and we're just going over some of the tough questions, and we hope to uh, get the uh, radio broadcast going, and I hope to really travel around. Uh, although, think, although I think uh, Ron thinks I am totally entrenched in Black Wall Street, <laughs> I do want to travel around the country. 
You think I'm totally entrenched in Black I Wall know. Street that I can't. <laughs> I, I have pictures of traveling everywhere asking the, asking the tough questions. But uh, we will, of course, make Black Wall Street a part of that. That is a part of what we do. Um, let's talk about let's talk about Black Wall Street and what's going on. Um, we have the uh, Walker reception coming up. We had a uh, committee meeting this morning, and uh, those are always so exciting. And uh, <laughs> yes, they are. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they are. They Woo! are. Yeah. Uh, we but have I guess the idea is, is okay. the work that's after of it. I, I, I would like to interject that I had a very interesting meeting uh, this evening, another different meeting, with uh, in line with the Black Wall Street. Uh, we talked about this morning at our meeting in which our theme for the next uh, summit, our reception, is all eyes on the districts. And what that means is that we're focusing on building our districts. And today I met with uh, people from the 17th Ward, which is my home ward, which is the ward I'm running an office for, elected office for aldermen. And the dialogue and the discussion and the focus with implementation was to make the 79th in Halsted a Black Wall Street district. And that is basically the concern and the discussion among the Black Wall Street members today is how are we going to move these Black Wall Street districts? How are we going to get those commitments from those leadership? And I'm here to focus that that leadership and that focus of building that Black Wall Street district definitely have to come from the community up. Yes, Black Wall Street, we're going to look at some areas in Chicago and our antennas going to pop out, the light bulb is going to flash, and we're going to say that is prime Black Wall Street. But regardless of how prime it is in helping to sustain and increase black business, the other part of it is the implementation to make it work. We're getting ready to come up on the, the the high shopping end of the year, the holiday shopping, and we want to try to get some ching-chings at these cash registers at these Black Wall Street districts. And that not only the cash register overflow, but we're also talking about the, the land, the property owners, that what's their role in helping to build these Black Wall Street districts and at the same time building their own business to their own benefit, to the ownership that their business is just as much part of the community as that sidewalk is part of the community. And we want to have a concrete relationship to build those businesses because upon doing that, that's going to have a reflect on us. So we discussed those things today with uh, Reverend William Samuels, who wants to look at the 79th and Halsted as a Black Wall Street district and a civil rights landmark, and using the two concepts to build a base within the Auburn-Gresham-Inglewood community. 
uh, and we want to do that with people that own the property. They have been subject to, uh, at some point, intimate domain to uh, making businesses hostage because of fines, inspections, and zoning that cause a delay in building certain businesses. So we want to move forward on what the leadership of the 79th and Halsted already is a board on, and that's going to make our reality a lot more uh, uh, feasible in order to meet. So we're looking good, and we're looking good in terms of trying to stay as focused as we possible, given the frustrations that we can have, and I think those frustrations are a historical in nature opposed to a uh, a focus of just being, oh, not caring. But we got to look at, as I say, uh, being organized to be disorganized in our uh, developments of our community. So, yeah, there is that piece of Black Wall Street working with the districts. Again, it's 11 districts. Uh, some districts are more involved than the others, but our mission is to help push those districts uh, forward. Um, and as the theme goes again, all eyes on the districts. Do we need to say all eyes on Black Wall Street districts or districts and leave it at that? What you think? Is that a tough question? No, that's not a tough question. I think it should be all eyes on the district because then uh -huh. they would say, what is what district? It'll lead them okay. to the prop curiosity and conversation. That's PR people. It'll prop, mm -hmm. it'll prop, it'll prop conversation. I think they need to know um, what district, and they may want mm. their district to be part of it once they uh, understand uh, the agenda of Black Wall Street. Let's talk about... Uh, a conversation that we had this week, just briefly, Ron, and uh, when we talk about the Inglewood community, the 17th Ward, the community uh, in which you're leading the 17th Ward movement, uh, I came across some data this week, and um, I just wanted to share it with our listeners. Uh, looking at some data that was submitted uh, from the city of Chicago, and it talks about the um, a word that we use all the time, disparities that exist uh, in the city as far as just one thing, and that's income. Well, the other thing would be employment. And those numbers reflected, and I'm not quoting them. I don't have them in front of me, but this information, these stats came from the city of Chicago. And if you look at the Logan Square area, which is up by Western uh, Milwaukee Avenue, uh, Kinsey Avenue, up in that area, on the north, uh, somewhat west side, around the blue line, running along the blue line over there, uh, indicated that the uh, median income for the Logan Square area was about 42000 in uh, 2007, it projected that that income would be about 45000 in 2012. When uh, I looked at the statistics for the Inglewood area, it indicated that the median income was 10000 about $10,500, 10, 
and projected for 2012 was the same income level and the same level of, of unemployment, about 52%. And the city of Chicago itself can see no progressive movement in such mm-hmm. a disparity. Mm-hmm. That was, uh, you know, I was kind of blown up about that <laughs> one day this week to see themselves in their own numbers, mm-hmm. in right. their own projections, no mm-hmm. change. What's going to make the difference in that, Mr. Carter? Well, uh, we got to do some comparison with those numbers with uh, other districts to, to uh, substantiate that. We do know that the uh, the issues are more intense in the black community compared to um, Chinatown, Greek Town, Little Village, Hispanic Town, Korean Town, Arab City. All of those uh, areas are basically districts, and as they being so, uh, you know, the demographics in comparison with uh, the jobs. Uh, my understanding that in the 17th ward uh, there's a high unemployment of about 30 percent. And how does that relate to the city as a whole, Uh, which I think that they've reported somewhere maybe about 17 percent of unemployment. Uh, So how do we compare and and say that, uh, well, that's just life, some people will say, well, everybody got it bad. Ain't no big thing. But if everybody don't have it bad equally, I think that there is a purpose for that or a reason for that or a situation. I don't think things get bad for one community and don't get bad for another unless there are policies in place that have created the uh, the EO feelings that one can have about a particular ward. I don't know. If I'm, I think I'm going to a little bit, a little bit off of your question, Sonia. <laughs> Bring me home. You're saying we need to look at this data in order to make uh, recommendations of action? I'm asking you what's going to make the difference in that disparity. Well, um, I'm going, I'd like to put it, this way, which is maybe not the the norm. I'd like to say that uh, there's the teaching of Elijah Muhammad that was very controversial, uh, but his teachings uh, created discipline within his organization. That discipline, as he developed it, had a certain pattern. He taught superiority because the black community looked at themselves as inferior. He taught that certain people were the devil because black people felt that they was the the scum of the earth. He talked about uh, black businesses because black folks did not know how to do it in massive numbers. I believe that the extremes that we have is got to be dramatically addressed based on the 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 emotions of action 
to make things turn around. Uh, there was in a, in a form of organizing the community uh, under the Shaw Alinsky approach of community organizing. Uh, one of the first principles of organizing is who is the enemy? Who is the target? Who has caused situations to be where they are? Once we can identify the enemy, then we are able to address the tough questions for actions to the enemy. But a lot of times the enemy is wearing the same uniform that we wear, which makes it harder to address the issue, uh, even to the point that today we some elected officials say uh, we got to keep Quinn as governor. Some say that let's stop going down the same path of, of voting for the Democratic Party. So the, the what is right to all of us is not always right to each of us. And But I believe that if we answer the question of who is the enemy, and then some people would say that the enemy is people being lazy, then I ask the question, what made them lazy and compare it to others? Are others lazy like those people that uh, contribute to high unemployment because they're lazy that they do not get the proper education to take jobs? Uh, when you go online or when you go into newspaper and you, you you see jobs galore but people can't qualify for them that keeps that unemployment high why can't people qualify for these jobs or can they not qualify for these jobs and they remain to be lazy who's the enemy are the people themselves the enemy and if the people themselves are their own enemy that put them in that situation, what caused them to be the enemy? So I think that we got to ask some other set of tough questions in order to keep asking those questions in order to get to the answer. I believe that we do have to use the extremes and the opposite uh, to flip things around. If the issue is the high employment, how we can address that, then we look at our communities and we see if our communities are a reflection of us. And if our communities are not a reflection of us when it comes to jobs, then are we calling ourselves our enemy or is how is somebody else an enemy that they have the same jobs that need to be in our community? So I think that we're going to have to look at uh, addressing answers as we look at some of the tough uh, issues that are in our community. Uh, and that's what we got to uh, look at in addressing it. I don't think that, um, you know, when we look at jobs, uh, there are, when we look at jobs that are not in our community, and even if we look at jobs that are not even in the United States, that is something that we got to find out. Why are there jobs not in the United States, and there are jobs in other countries. Are those jobs in Korea? Are those jobs in 
uh, Japan? Are there jobs in Mexico? Are those jobs in Africa? Are those jobs justified being produced in the United States but manufactured in other countries? Does that have an effect in the Inglewood community that the employment is high? I believe that those are some tough questions, again, that we got to look at the source, and as we call it in the community, is who is the enemy to address those questions. I think I was born Roman and Roman and Romans, uh, Sonia. Is that one of your tough questions that can't have no real simple answer or what? There, there There are no simple answers. Because if you look at the first tough question that I asked, and then when I went uh, into this question about the disparity uh, of income, yeah, you did go all, you did go around and you touched on a lot of different things. Because if you look at the first tough question, that's just that's one question, but there's many parts of that question touching on many different things, uh, many many different things. If we look at the Income disparity, once you start speaking of the income disparity, it does touch on many, many things. Who is the enemy is one. Uh, who's qualified is another. Uh, who the elected officials are in that community that has watched that income uh, remain below the poverty level and kept their jobs. So you could go on and on. The education, uh, social issues, history. So it touches on many different things, each part of those questions. Now, uh, I want to reflect on one of my experiences. I've been around the block a long time. I've had a lot of different experiences. But this is one experience I had when we're talking about jobs and we're talking about people, I guess, at the bottom of the economic range um, and what happens to them and jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh I think it was once, and it was in the 90s. I was broke, didn't have any money. I didn't, and uh, didn't want to borrow. When you money say you didn't have no money, does that mean that you didn't have no money, or you had two dollars in your pocket? Which one? What does that mean? That meant uh, you had two dollars, and had, you didn't have no money. I had, I had some car fare. <laughs> I mean, I had some car fare. You I said you didn't have no money, Sonya. Okay. All right. I had okay. a little money, okay. Ron. Okay. All right. I had a little right. money, Ron. Uh-huh. But okay. I would, in order to keep going, I would have needed to borrow some because I didn't have an income flow right at that moment. Mm-hmm. I didn't okay. have a check coming. I didn't see one right at that second. All okay. right. So I had to think, and I didn't really want to call and borrow any money from somebody. I said, where am I going to get some money? I need some money. Mm-hmm. And so I remember somebody saying that you can go to these day labor places and they'll pay you the same day. I said, well, all I need is some money that I can do this, 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 and this. So I looked at the yellow pages. And, of course, there are day labor places in the yellow pages. Mm-hmm. And they did say they'll pay you that day. So I called and I asked the lady at this particular agency. I said, if I come into work today, you'll pay me today? She said, yeah, come on in. Mm-hmm. I went up to North Avenue, and there was quite a few around in that area, Hispanic community. I went in, filled out a little one-page application, and she sent me on a job that day. I got my little minimum wage. I'm like, mm. didn't have to borrow mm-hmm. any money. Went on about my business. Cool. Mm-hmm. Went back the next day, 
same lady sent me on a little job, went on about my business. Mm-hmm. Came back the next day. She sent me somewhere for a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, came back the next week. Now, that lady wasn't there anymore. Went back, sit there, because I'm getting my money together so I can make me another move. Oh, you need some money to get you through. I'm like, all right, get this little check. Go ahead and make me, you know, make it my little plans, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was get me through money. I don't mind working hard. So Mm -hmm. I sat in this room, uh, in this room, traveled all the way from the south side, and, and other people did like me, traveled all the way from the south side, to come to this room, sit in this labor pool, and wait to be called. So, as I sat there that day, did get called. It wasn't a problem because it was working. Oh, well, okay, I didn't go. Sit there again, did get called. Sit there again, did get called. So now I'm paying attention to what's going on, okay? Okay. What was happening was after a while I started, you know, talking to people, listening to the rules. Well, you have to get here at 5 a.m., Fine, I'll give you at 5 a.m. Sit there again. When you looked at the room, all the Hispanics were gone, and the black people were left sitting in the room. And I'm like, wait a minute. Hold on a second here. What's happening? Wait, okay. So then, you know, I get called for one, so to one. But now I want to know what's going on because that's me. Okay. I want to go. Right. I want to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Talking to people. uh I started hanging around, talking to people, talking to people, talking to people. And they were very frustrated. And people want to say, my people don't want to work. Now, these are people that come from all kinds of different places. I just happened to be an educated woman, bro, happened to land in there. They had the wrong one, Ron. But anyway, so, so I'm watching this. I'm watching this. They're there. They do follow the rules. They come there at 5 a.m. They're not getting the jobs. They might send one or two tokens out, you know, just as a gesture. Uh, they're sitting there in their room. They're angry. They're upset. They don't have places to live. They might be on drugs. They might be doing just what I'm doing, trying to get by. They're sitting there in their room and watching the Mexicans go out. I said, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Got the wrong one. So what happened? I kept going back. But so I'm a little creative. I'm not going to just go there. I found out because I'm talking to people. There's more of them. So I go to the other one, go to the other one, but I still come back to that one. I kept coming back, and I started documenting what was happening there. I started documenting what was happening, and I started watching, and I started watching, and I started talking to people. Now, there was one lady who had a case against them, and I ran into her son. Her son used to work for one and all was up there, and he introduced to me introduced me to his mother, and she had taken, before that, she had taken a lot of names and numbers of people who were very frustrated about it. So she had her case in the court. Fine. I went to the EEOC. I filed my complaint. Mm -hmm. They sent someone who looked just like me to investigate, okay? Mm -hmm. She came back and told me that I did not have a case. That was a Hispanic community. These people lived in that community, and they did not have to give me a job. Oh, she wow. She told If she did, she looked just Ooh. like me, and they sent her out there, and that was her response to me. I didn't go off. I ain't saying nothing to her. I didn't go through my changes. 
Uh, I mm. told her to give me the right to sue because, see, I, I'm not your average person that they were dealing with. They had the wrong one. They had the mm-hmm. wrong one. So what I did is I filed my case in the uh, court, circuit court, the Brown Court. I filed my case. Um, They did not want to give me an attorney. I talked to them a little bit more. But by that time, see, it was like a month. I did that off and on for a month. In a month, I had a job. See, it was just Mm -hmm. to carry me through. But some of those people, that's their last hope to go out on those little jobs on that day to try to get by to sleep in a room that night to do what they had to do sometimes. That was their last, and they were being turned away from that place. And not only that place, it was happening other places because I went to other places, okay? Well, was that so an agency that was ran by Hispanics? It was uh, an uh, Italian. Oh, so oh, it was Italian... Uh, ran agency in a Hispanic neighborhood that basically looked at Hispanics as their first priority in placing. Yes. Yes. That is, uh, so, uh, I I don't, I can't, uh, I can't fathom the operation. Yes. It's real. uh, It's real. It's yeah. real. It's real. I experienced it. I watched it. I documented it. It's real. That's what was going on. They had those Hispanic gangs. If they protested, they had them jump on. Had them jumped on. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. So what I did, I filed my case. But so you don't know me that well, but you'll 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 know me better. I filed my case. When I filed my case, I went back there, and I passed out the uh, case manager's name. That's, no, before I filed my case, I uh, mm-hmm. passed out the case manager's name at EOC and told them to call. I had a, uh, I passed it out. I stood outside because I had a job then. It was like a month. I had a job. I went out a job. But I, I mm-hmm. went back uh, that morning before I was going to work because I know I got there at 5 o'clock and I was going to work that morning but something happened. I went there and started passing out the information. You know they want to tear me up over there, don't you? Yeah. So they told me I couldn't walk back and forth in front of their uh, their place of business. I wouldn't call the police. The police sent two police cars out there to watch me while I was passing out the literature because they wanted to shoot me. Now, the owner of the uh, the Italian, he came out and he walked back and forth with me. He was supposed to be protecting me. He was supposed to protect me, protected me. But what he did, and I'm standing there watching, this drug addict went in there and was at the back talking to him. And I'm walking back and forth, but I'm watching. He gave him some How do you know it was a drug addict? He... Well, he looked like a drug addict. I assume drug addict. Wrong. He looked like one. All right, okay. But anyway, <laughs> he, gave, he passed him some money. He came out there and became very threatening to me. But what I did, I reversed it on him. I said, you know what? I was going to work this morning. I said, but you know what? I'm not going to work now. I'm going to make me some more copies, and I'm going to stand here and pass this out to second shift. Mm-hmm. So he talked to the guy and pulled him aside and asked him to leave because the guy wanted to jump on him. So I thought I should get my little butt out of there by the <laughs> So 
I went on and left. I told the police that they could leave, that I would leave. Because when I called the police, they said, no, he cannot tell you that you cannot walk down that street. We'll send someone. And they sent two police cars for me. And do you know one of the cop cars he was Hispanic? Uh, he was talking to one of the cops, one of the black cops sitting in the car. He was talking okay. to one of the cops. So he, when he said something to the cop, I said, because he, he was saying, well, this is a Hispanic community. They live here. You know, they work here. I say, they don't own this community. I can come here and I can work here. He told me he wasn't talking to me. I said, but I was talking to you. But he didn't know mm-hmm. what to say because that black cop was sitting there. You know, I think I'm crazy. And I was living with somebody, and I hadn't told him I was going out to do this. I went home and told him that story. He almost fell out and wanted to know, was I crazy? So mm-hmm. I got on the bus and took my little cell phone about my business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, they're going to shoot me up here, you know. But I did mm-hmm. pass out that information, and they called the EEOC. Do you know she mm-hmm. was upset about that, that they mm-hmm. had had those people call? But mm-hmm. they did. They did. Well, I think that that, yeah, go ahead. Let me tell you. I want to finish telling you. What happened is I took my case to court. The people who went to the EOC, because I took my case to court, they had to settle with them. They settled with them out of court for $2,500. But I wasn't dropping my case for $2,500. I didn't get a whole lot, but I got more than that. So they could have gave me a job, and they would have came out much better. But, uh... They had to, in order for me to agree, they had to change some of their policies, which they probably didn't follow anyway. But I I tell that story to say that um, people said my people don't want to work. My people were there trying to work. They were not permitted to work. And that's why I tell tell that story, you know. Um, I tried to get the lady who who had her case in court also to give me the names of all the people who had – you know, her list, and she would not do it. She was upset because she also was getting ready to settle for about 2500 and she, she would not give me the name so I could file a class action suit. I said, that's okay. I'm just going to go ahead. I did what I could in that situation. But, and, but that's only one agency. So when they say my people don't want to work, that's just a lie. When they go up there at 5 o'clock in the morning, they're asking to work. They want to work, right. and they get frustrated, and they don't come back anymore. So right. then they go True. do something else. So, right. but that's just one experience of my yeah. thousands. Well, that yeah, the, the the question of you know when we when you spoke about the first uh, uh, three uh, the one not the second tough question, um, and, you know we spoke about if uh, regarding the, uh, the unemployment is. The jobs are there, but do you qualify for the jobs? And the jobs that are in low uh, demand or so-called low-grade jobs, uh, when you apply for them and you're still blocked by a systematic system of priority that's not written in the books, even to the point that if we ask the question of the, um, say, South Street Journal newspaper, why isn't it that South Street Journal do not have uh, other nationalities working for them? Um, I think that the question is that 
some people cannot understand the philosophy of South Street Journal uh, and think that maybe think that they cannot understand the philosophy that they do not apply. Um, opposed to is a South Street Journal that is only seeking a certain type of individuals or thinking that uh, only certain type of people can understand the philosophy of the newspaper being more of a grassroots progressive type of uh, newspaper. Um, the same way if I was looking for a job at a another newspaper, would I sit in the realm of the Chicago Tribune or Chicago Sun-Times uh, upon them posting a job application uh, that I qualify for? Uh, and I'm going to be intimidated not because of the job, but I'm going to be intimidated because I'm not able to adapt. So I'm not going to apply regardless of how much I would need that job. But uh the, the institution as it is, is that there is a culture within me that tells me not to. So, but there is another question of that systematic uh, priority of who an agency will hire um, in a particular community. Um, so when you have an agency that's ran by Italians, that only hire Hispanics as a priority because they're in that area, I would say that that is a, uh, that that particular Italian agency opened up that, um, uh, that agency because there is money in Hispanics opposed to opening up that agency in a black or a Caucasian neighborhood, and there was there a mandate that if it was a private agency, this place when actually that question was this a private agency or a, a public agency or a delegate agency they're receiving some grants to provide employment, or was it a private corporation ran by Italians that only hired basically Hispanics? Did family you know which one it would be? Family. It was a family corporation. Mm -hmm. Oh, so it was a private agency located in a Hispanic neighborhood that gave priority to Hispanics. Uh, so for the most part, this family, Italian family, seen a market in the Hispanic community and made that their priority. But that's even right. if that's the case, pardon Yes. Yeah. So, but it's still a form of discrimination, and I think that that discrimination have a lot to do with the mindset of, as I guess those folks that were a black waiting in that waiting room for a job, and they were black. Uh, what do you think that ran through their minds to the point that they were not able to take the initiative and the actions that you did? to call the question to what you've seen, that they did not call the question to what they've seen. Uh, is it a point that they did not know how or they were intimidated or they was hoping that they can be the one that 
the one black that got hired. What do you, you foresee that they did not raise the question as you did? Well, I think, uh, you know, I am degreed. I have had a lot of different experience. I just happened to land there. I have probably maybe different life experience. But there was a variety of different people in there. But they people have a tendency to complain. See, I, you know, I have a tendency to uh, move a little in a different direction. People have a tendency to complain. They grow up, they complain, they sit out there and cuss and that type of thing, but that's not what's going to get it done. Um, mm-hmm. You have to go through processes. I understand processes. I can go to the circuit court, fill out the papers, and uh, file my own case and see where it's going. Uh, mm-hmm. EOC hate to see me coming because it's not the first time, uh, nor was that the last time that I've done it. EOC hate to see me coming. But mm-hmm. uh, I just may have been, and like the other lady, she did it. She had been there before, and she did it, and that doesn't mean anyone else did did not. Maybe they did not go back and pass out literature or, or whatever the case or try and draw people into the case. Maybe they did or maybe they did not. I don't know. But I, I, I probably, I'm sure that maybe other people did go and complain. But the people that I saw, uh, it was painful too. It was painful to see that happening and what they felt, you know, watching them there with that rejection. Oh, that was painful to watch. And uh, and that's why I had to do something. That's why I could not because I had a job. I could have walked away, but no. I could not walk away and leave it without making a statement as I walked away. I had I had a job at the uh, Mercantile Exchange over there at Wacker, but I could not walk away and leave it just like that. If that doesn't fit me, so mm-hmm. being the type of person that I am, um, I had to. I just I had to. Uh, people walk away, they never come back again, they get frustrated, maybe they find another agency or another outlet or something else to do, but I had to leave those Italians with a message. You got the wrong one. My letter to the EEOC was very blunt, very blunt. The Jewish attorney that was handling their case uh, didn't like it at all because it was very ethical. I said it like I meant it, and I meant it like I said it by what they were doing over there. Uh, I did not bite my tongue in mm-hmm. my statement to the EOC, and uh, he was upset with my statement. Well, you know, that's tough. <laughs> you know, I meant it like I said. I said it like I thought. That's what's mm-hmm. going on over there. Uh, it wasn't nice at all, and I didn't mean for it to be nice. I meant for it to be read and for them to know how it felt. So everyone's not the same, and because of us who are and who can and who will, we should, Ryan. That's all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we definitely should, if we can. Uh, it's just a matter of what getting uh, pulling up the bootstrap and just getting on that horse and slap that butt and start trotting down the road. <laughs> Is that what it takes, you know? As long as that horse can do some loops over some fences, you're all right. If it don't stop at a fence and say, I don't know what to do, jump, horse, jump. <laughs> you can okay. jump. You didn't know you can jump. 
and, right. that, and that's what we should do. Let's. Uh, you listen to Black Wall Street USA. I'm Sonia Purdue. Uh, Chicago's Black Business Network dot com, and I'm in a dialogue on the tough questions with uh, Ron Carter, channel of Black Wall Street Chicago. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back and uh, talk about Black Wall Street and what's going on with Black Wall Street. And we want to thank you for joining us. We'll be right back in a moment. Wrong Street, Chicago, and I don't know what's wrong with Nita Simone tonight. I don't know what's wrong with her tonight, but we're going to come back. Ron, are you there? I am here. Okay. Nita not, not feeling well. Trouble in mind. I want to hear that, too. Um, let's talk about Black Wall Street, Chicago, as we uh, come up on uh, 830 here. Now, uh, the Economic Summit, for those who will be listening for the first time uh, about Black Wall Street, let's talk about the Economic Summit uh, 13, which is scheduled for December 4th uh, in Chicago. Summit 14. Oh, Summit 14. Yes, it is, isn't it? 
Yes, we're getting on up there. That means that we had three summits. Uh, we had summits every three months since the beginning of Black Wall Street since 2007 on May of 2007 on the anniversary of Malcolm X's birthday. So and we started off with the term uh, Black Wall Street Economic Summit. Uh, that was our original name. And then we changed it and did a name change to Black Wall Street Chicago in order to be in sync and to identify our actions uh, that separate but in concert with Black Wall Streets all over uh, the United States. So, the, but the economic summit part is still the basis of how we operate. Uh, given that this Summit 14, the theme of it is all eyes on the district, uh, but when we talk economic summit, it covers a broad spectrum of operation, which includes black contractors in the neighborhood, a black better business concept, um, uh, legislation that affects parity in the uh, in the automatic menu of getting jobs and contracts, it addresses youth, how we're going to engage youth in the year 2040, how we're going to look at engaging the churches in economic uh, development and buying black, how we're going to focus on uh, building individual businesses. So the economics of Black Wall Street are broad, but we do target in is something that's tangible. I can say that of all of the agendas, again, when we speak about a black agenda, it means many things to many different people. But as using uh, Webb Evans' term, when he speaks, the first thing he do is he raised that dollar out of his pocket and said, this is the power that we have to focus on. This is the agenda that we have to focus on is that dollar bill. And once we begin to look at that dollar bill as the focus of a black agenda, then we're going to be able to see something tangible we're going to be able to see some results in our community opposed to the rhetoric of black gender, black gender, black gender. So I profess of many the, the many things that many of us are doing in order to enhance our economic uh, instability, that one thing that will stabilize it, one thing that will help the black community to be able to see, touch, smell, and taste is the Black Wall Street districts as they develop. So with all of those things that we look at when we speak about the economic uh, development, regardless of the short term of Black Wall Street and regardless of the long term of Black Wall Street, uh, we have not done all that we can, and we have these summits to evaluate what we have done what we can do, and what we need to move on next. Uh, and that is how we hold ourselves responsible and accountable to the legacy of Black Wall Street as it was known in 1921 in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So we got to a, a, a big picture of catching up. 
I think that one thing that stays in my mind is one of our guests we had some time ago, uh, Sonia, was Guy Williams, when he felt as though that the black community uh, access is maybe about $8 compared to a white is $88 or so. But that is an alarming uh, fact that we have to address where he says that we would never catch up. I differ with him, but I do know that because of the many social ills that we are faced, that it seems as though we jump from one issue to another issue, from legislature to redlining to uh, corporate uh, domination over our minds. All those things play a, uh, have a play in the economics of Black Wall Street. So the agenda is broad, but we do target it in. This coming up summit, we will secure our agenda. Uh, and as we secure that agenda, we will also be securing our directive from not only our Black Wall Street district, but also those initiatives that touch on youth, church, uh, Black Better Business Bureau, uh, the black contractors in the neighborhood, the legislation as it relates to parity of automatic menu, and the city legislative issue as it relates to contract procurement, which is 8% for blacks. Um, and sadly to say, that 8% is higher than the state of Illinois that only have approximately 4% black participation on this minority-slash-black uh, contract procurement program. So our agenda is still tense. We normally have to take a week off after that first agenda, uh, and I assume that we're going to do it again, take a break in order to reflect and to order to retreat and come back to the same focus that we were in 2007 of May, um, when Black Wall Street first started. So, yes, Sonia, the agenda is intense, the movement is intense, the frustrations are even intense based on what we can do and what we don't do, and then when the question raised, do we know any better to do anything better? And I give it that. Sometimes we actually don't know uh, how to address our questions. Think that we keep them inside. I know you said we want to talk about uh, Black Wall Street, but I'm reflecting back on your book, asking those tough questions, asking those tough questions as it relates to implementation of our social and cultural awareness. Uh, they ask the tough question, would you be afraid to walk down Inglewood? Uh, some would say yes, some would say no. But the majority of them should say yes, but the reality is that is not the case. So I believe that Black Wall Street and its economic agenda have to be able to be reflective of many but narrow our focus down to some manageable victories because we all know we, if we had the genie, we'll snap this city, this state, this country back in order where it needs to be. But I don't know if we should say back in order 
because back in order, I think they made some laws that blacks were only so much percentage of a man when they made the Constitution of 14. What's the day that Constitution was made, 1776? 1776. So, yeah, so, yeah, 1776. Okay, so we have to look at the big picture when we talk about addressing our issues. Can we look at that big picture to draw all the economic agenda interest to Black Wall Street? If we can't do it to Black Wall Street uh, in the setting that we have, then who can we go to uh, to be able to trust our black agenda? And, again, I'm looking at it as economic stability that will actually produce jobs. That was going to be one of my uh, questions to you, and you and you answered it pretty much. And it was going to be: Do you think the agenda is too broad? Could you accomplish more focusing on one agenda at a time? Well, uh, we got to be, as I indicated, with Black Wall Street. Our meeting today uh, was questioned about the the criteria for having a person to head a Black Wall Street district because it is a volunteer organization and some of us do have more time than the others. Some of us have more insight than the others and then those that have more insight and and thrust to make it happen, they're not sitting at the table. They don't raise their hand to take on their leadership. Uh, So that rests with us that uh, some of us do, some of us don't. But I do profess that collectively those many agendas are a necessity to stay on the table because they're all in a lock with each other. How we discuss them all without having a concern of uh, of uh, too many different issues, I'm not for sure. But our focus is sustaining increasing black businesses, and in doing so, um, we are not apologetic in being black, but we're just as open to other nationalities as they fit, as they say see fit where we need to go and where we need to be. You listen to Black Wall Street. (laughs) Do we have an affirm uh, presenter for the welcome reception? Sure do. We have uh, uh, Quentin Love, who's with Quince Foods. They just opened up a restaurant right off of 95th and King Drive. And we got your guy, Minister... uh, Raheem Atan, better known as Sax Preacher. Both of those gentlemen will be with us on our reception on June um, 5th. And the reason why they're pretty unique, because uh, one of them uh, has the only black store in the Chicago. Uh, there is, matter of fact, there's another one. There's a little small one somewhere around about 92nd and Ashland, but this one here is more of a bigger scale, and so we want to uh, acknowledge uh, Mr. Love based on his entrepreneur 
uh, focus and his entrepreneur spirit that has created jobs in the interim. And the same way with Brother uh, Minister Rahim, where he has engaged people in actual jobs based on his uh, progressive nature in sustaining and increasing black businesses. So you're definitely way uh, up there where we need to be, I mean, uh, in dealing with the issues. Yes, absolutely. Yes, Quick Love, uh, currently, he does currently have a grocery store off uh, 95th. Is that 95th and King Drive, I believe? Yeah, it's right west of King Drive on 95th Street. And so they definitely, um, you know, so they're going to be with us. And for the most part, they're going to bring their associates with us, uh, with them as well, on November the 5th. Great. And he also has uh, six restaurants, and we were talking about that today, and his food is good. I have I've oh, eaten yeah. at the one um, on 75th off of King Draft. Boy, mm-hmm. I went in there and I, and I placed the order. And this says Southern Fried Chicken, the old-fashioned mm-hmm. way. So, you know, I just mm-hmm. ate some chicken. You know, we eat chicken all the time. Man, right, oh, yeah. man. Whoa, mm-hmm. that was a good chicken. So um, he has and, and you can visit his website. It's the uh, the Love Group dot uh, com. I hope I'm saying that right, Mr. Love. And um, we we look forward to him being a presenter and sharing uh, his success stories uh, with us and talking about uh, sustaining and increasing black businesses and being the example of sustaining and increasing black businesses. He's moving right on with it, and he's setting the template. I think that's important. I think people need to understand that that's uh, part of the reason, yes, we do want to honor him, but part of the reason is because he's an example of success. And we should, oh, yeah. that's Definitely. where we should look mm-hmm. for our examples uh, at the success stories, and we should support the success stories. No, mm-hmm. they cannot always be sitting at the table with us at a board meeting or anything because. If you got six stores, well, seven or eight now, it's that that's very difficult. But it doesn't mean you're not supporting the community. You're supporting it in a different way. Uh, mm-hmm. And look at the uh, sex preacher, Minister Raheem, uh, the Everything Black store on uh, East 79th Street. And all mm-hmm. that he does, he does not just, he's not just involved with the Everything Black store. His, uh, I talked to him quite a, a bit a long time this week, and he's not just involved in that. He's involved in many, many, many movements and many, many things over at the Temple of Mercy. So um, he reaches out to many organizations and many groups and works on many different projects. So, yes, uh, these are people that we should uh, hold up as an example. And, yes, we do want to hear their stories. And we do want to listen to their experiences because when we listen to them, we find we have the same experience and we need to know how we can create the same thing that they're creating without starting from scratch. That's that's how I look at that. So I look forward to uh, Mr. Quentin Love uh, being a part of what we're doing at Black Wall Street and Minister Raheem, who is also a a member of Black Wall Street. I look forward to him being there and some of that music 
Uh, and I think we can close out with some of his music. We always playing it anyway. <laughs> I think we can All close right. out with something that something that his and and that will be great. So I'm looking forward to that. I also want to talk about another event that I'm putting together, and that's November 16th, and uh, and that's going to be at the Mid America Club, and we're going to be sending out information on that. That particular focus is on youth organizations and those involved in youth organizations. And we're going to uh, send invitations out across the city for them to join us and to connect at this event. One of the organizations that I'm starting is Jobs Training and Services for Youth. It's going to be a part of something that I'm doing. And where I'm focusing at, you didn't know that, Mr. Carter, did you? And where I'm focusing at is uh, if we look at a particular organization, even Black Wall Street, sometimes you can't do everything that needs to be done. But there is someone that that organization can connect with as far as the services being offered. And if they collaborate on a particular service, it lifts both organizations up. And we have great, there's some great difficulty in that. But I want to work on that particular agenda and uh, look at youth organizations from a consulting standpoint and what they need and find organizations to collaborate, not compete, but to collaborate to make both of those entities more successful and be able to serve more youth and be able to serve them in a better manner. So that's what I'm looking at uh, for my job training and services for youth program. It's uh, starting from scratch. It will be a nonprofit, but um, I'm going to take on that challenge and be very focused about that. So this is kind of the beginning, that event at Mid-America Club uh, in the Aon building on Randolph is sort of the beginning part of that for me to communicate and start the ball rolling with that particular part. And you should be getting information on that. But you can call me at 312-239-8835. Now, Ron, I do know also that Angela Williams, the chair of the Stony Island District, is having an event. And do you have that information right there for you? She's having a townhouse meeting. Do you have that information in front of you? Is that a yes or no question, Ron? <laughs> Mr. Carter. Yes, ma'am. Hello? I know that you said. Yeah, can you hear me? Okay, I got you now. Uh, okay, yeah. All right. I think I hear a little a gap in, in, in hearing or something right there. Okay. Well, I'm oh, back okay. So let me. Okay, let me. Uh, let me ask that question again. I do know that Angela Williams, the chair of the Stony Island District, is holding a townhouse meeting. Do you have that information there with you? Uh, no, I don't have it. I think that she is in the midst of securing that date. We did talk about it today, um, and as she's securing that one for Stony Island, she's also securing that same collaborative of 87th Street and 79th Street as a joint effort for those three Black Wall Street to join together. Uh, she did knock around a few dates, uh, but I don't know why. I uh, No, I don't have that exact date. Okay, that'll be fine. We'll, we'll make that announcement and get that out in the blast also. Now, uh, Black Contractors in the Neighborhood, will you be having a uh, meeting this Saturday? 
Oh, no, it won't be a meeting this Saturday, but we are getting our correspondents out uh, in order to get people ready uh, for legislation on the uh, parity legislation where the automatic man- menu of $2.3 million was set in the, in the hands of the alderman. I talked to Pat Dow uh, earlier today to see if she was still on for this here particular legislation, and she indicated that uh, she is. So uh, the black contractors in the neighborhood is still on the agenda uh, to address that type of legislation uh, that will support parity of the city contracts, at least at the automatic level. Um, and uh, we hope that we will have some type of, matter of fact, this Saturday, there's going to be a mayoral uh, presentation debate. Uh, and IL will be there, and I will be asking each of those candidates that particular uh, question on their position of, uh, of parity of the automatic menu of $2.3 million. We look at that. That can be approximately about over uh, $40 million that can be generated in the black community from city contracts. And what will that debate be? Uh, Well, that debate is going to be this Saturday uh, at... um, uh, at the African uh, African AME Church on 44th and Michigan Avenue. Uh, that's going to kick off at 1 o'clock, and it will be till 3 o'clock. So I will be there raising the tough questions as a journalist and seeking that acquisite mind of uh, parity as representing Black Wall Street and building my black agenda going in it as a candidate uh, for the 17th Ward, strictly with black agenda when it comes to the wards, whether a particular alderman want to accept it or not. Great, great. You listen to Black Wall Street USA, and we're just going over just some of the things that are coming up uh, with Black Wall Street. You can call us at 312-624-8351 to be added to our mailing and information list. You can contact me, Sonia Perdue, at 312-239-8835. Okay, Ron, let's have your, uh, still a good show. Let's have your closing remarks. Well, I want people to come to our meetings on Thursday morning. Um, I'm still Thursday morning at 8.30. And those that are not in the Chicagoland area, I uh, want you to contact Michael Carter at our national office. You can go to his website at Black Wall Street Districts and get in contact with Michael Carter uh, for a Black Wall Street district near you. And if you're near Chicago, you can contact myself, but we will assist you in that endeavor. And as we get ready for our meeting next week, Thursday, for our planning meeting. Uh, join us, um, support us, uh, be at this reception on uh, the uh, the 5th of November and then at our summit on December the 
uh, December the 4th, and all the other activities that's in between, because we got a lot of stuff going on, and with all this stuff going on, we want you to be involved in our mission and objective of sustaining and increasing black businesses. Great, Mr. Child. I want to thank you for being here this evening. It's been great. And I want to mention also, uh, it was voted after the national summit at the prayer breakfast that we will have a prayer breakfast, and we will get that information out to you too. Busy, busy, busy. That's right. The last one was <laughs> the last one was at L twenty six, which was very nice. Which was very oh, nice. Oh yeah, I enjoyed uh, myself everyone, very much. Everyone had nothing but positive. Nothing but positive, mm-hmm. great things to say about L26. And right. uh, I'm going to be over there for another event shortly for uh, one of my members. But mm-hmm. uh, we want to thank you for joining us on Black Wall Street USA. And uh, are you going to continue the show after you all them in, Mr. Carter? You're going to have to resign from the show too, huh? We're going to find a way to keep this going uh, some kind of way. We're going to have to talk about that, Sonia. Uh, because uh, right. this is going right. to be a very that. much miss of my <laughs> uniform, not to say that I'm on every Thursday with you on uh, Chicago's Black Business Network with the Black Wall Street. Uh, that is going to be a missing part of my life, how I'm going to deal with that not talking to you every Thursday, huh? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. We'll We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Uh, we'll have uh, we'll see if some uh, these Blackwall people can step up to it. Some of these Chicago's Black Business Network people can step up sometime and give them mm-hmm. some of the experience too. That's that's what it's about. Develop uh, leadership development, right, Mr. Carter? That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. We want to thank you for joining us this evening. We're really uh, thankful that people on the line, I guess, are just listening to us. And, and that's great. That's great. We invite you, uh, I invite you to join me at Chicago's Black Business Network.com. Uh, there are 695 members now, and we're uh, growing every day uh, and changing every day. Look for a lot of changes there. I'm working very, very hard to make that. Uh, where everyone wants to be in Chicago, where everyone needs to be if you're in business in Chicago, working on a, a lot of new features for that particular website. So join us at www.chicagosblackbusinessnetwork.com. Visit uh, Black Wall Street National and blackwallstreetdistrict.com. And in closing, persistence is the act of continually pursuing something in spite of obstacles. And I'll repeat that. Persistence is the act of continually pursuing something in spite of obstacles. Thank you for joining me, Mr. Carter, and uh, talk to you soon. Everyone have a great evening, and thank you. Good night, all. Good night.